Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and today we've got Guy Talk to get things started. And then in the second hour, I'm going to have a conversation with Dr. James Merritt. He's written a book called How to Deal with How You Feel, Managing the Emotions That Make Life Unmanageable. That's what's coming up for you today. I'm so glad you joined me today. If you have a question for the panel, which is Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn today, you can text your question over to 877-933-2484. Gentlemen, welcome. Good to be here. Hi, Bill. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So, uh, I, you know, I'm expecting to be uh, dealing with a lot of great questions today. I would like to get us started, though, on one. Uh, I would like for us to talk about a carnal Christian. Can a true Christian be carnal? Maybe we should start by even defining that word carnal. Well, it goes back to this. First of all, when we talk about what is a true Christian, and and that's the first definition. A true Christian is simply someone who has acknowledged that they are incapable of saving themselves, that they need a Savior, and they have surrendered to Jesus. Now, the problem is, coming out of that is, uh, I've been thinking about this, free will is an issue. Even after you know Jesus, many of us still choose to do things that are stupid, wrong, sinful. And if you continue down that path without coming to grips with it immediately and saying, I was wrong, I sinned against you, Lord, you will wind up going down that carnal path and you will justify bad behavior, even though you represent Jesus. And I'm not talking about salvation, but I am talking about you're not a very effective disciple. So let's talk, Tom mentioned true Christian. So the first kind of question when we look at whether or not there is such a thing as a carnal Christian is to kind of answer the question, well, was Paul speaking to true Christians in Corinth? And so we look surrounding this passage in 1 Corinthians 3, which we should probably read read in a minute here where he calls them carnal or worldly. But the question is, are they true Christians? Well, In chapter 5, it says, For in Christ Jesus, I, Paul, became your father in the gospel. He later calls them brothers and sisters in first, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 4, 6. And later in chapter 6, he says that uh, that you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it seems clear in the context of 1 Corinthians that he's speaking to Christians. Mm -hmm. Tom also mentioned free will. It's, It's funny because, you know, there are some in Christianity that either minimize or say that man doesn't have free will at all, either to believe and be saved or in what we do. And it's it seems to me, reading Scripture, that the problem is not that we don't have free will. The problem is, is that we have free will and we use it. <laughs> That's the problem. Uh, so let's, let's read the passage, So shall we, where he calls them carnal or worldly. So 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are worldly or carnal, mere infants in Christ. 
I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly or carnal? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? So the Greek word for worldly is sarkinos, which means worldly or fleshly or carnal. Paul is calling them carnal because they're not acting in the way that God God has made them holy, but they're not acting out their holiness. They're acting like their old self, the worldly fleshly self, and that's the problem. I think one of the problem with most of us that are very evangelical at heart, we're very happy to get people to repent of their sins, confess Jesus as Lord and Savior at a gathering or an altar call or a Bible study, but we forget that they need to, the next day, affirm again their relationship with Jesus, and the next day, and the next day, through the rest of their lives. And the goal is always in that, not to do anything to try to be saved. You are saved. But now you're doing it to become like Jesus and represent him in this world, speaking with his voice and his mind and his heart to the people around us. That's why he says, grow up. Stop acting like the world. Start acting like Christ. I mean, Scripture is full of exhortations to no longer live as the Gentiles do, uh, to to put off your old self, to not offer your your body or parts of your body to sin, uh, to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to that sinful nature, the the flesh, the the worldliness, uh, to not gratify it. I mean, don't uh, uh, abstain from the sinful desires that you have that wage against your soul. I mean, these are all different passages that, that say, stop living like the world does. You used to live in that way when you were unsaved. Now that you're saved, now that I've made you holy, live out your holiness. When Paul uses the term brethren, I understand that that he, that was a term used exclusively to other believers. Yes. And then he turns around and calls them carnal. So I, I think also there's this idea that people have abused this carnal Christian, like they can get saved and then live how they want. Yeah. Can I can I put make a note here? Because yeah. when I was thinking about this before the show. One of the aspects of this is Gnosticism. Gnosticism mm-hmm. is a was a common belief system in the first century. Actually, it's still common today in a lot of ways. That salvation came through some kind of secret knowledge. Gnosticism is basically knowledge. But part of Gnosticism was they made this distinction between the spirit of the man and the and the the body, the physical body of the man. And since we're saved spiritually, you can basically do whatever you want in the body. This is a false teaching. You know, it, it, in the next chapter, a couple chapters later in 6, Paul says, you say food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. The Corinthians were basically saying, since I'm saved spiritually, I can do anything I want in the body, and Paul is correcting them. Well done, gentlemen. you're exactly right. Yeah. All right, here's a question that just came in. Can you help me understand what the authority of Christ means within me, and if that authority can be used to pray over my children and husband for protection 
from the spiritual attacks of the enemy? Oh, I think that's critical. And I think that's very important. And again, I don't think most Christians understand that concept. But especially if you're the father in the home, you know, you have a very important role to provide spiritual guidance, spiritual discipline, and spiritual direction. But you also, by a believer in Jesus Christ, have authority over the demonic. And that is why I would say, yes, pray over your children, pray over them that the the uh, the wicked, uh, the demons, and that would not influence them, that they would always have good judgment in the Lord, and make sure you do plenty of scripture reading with them in memory, because then the Lord can pull that back when they are tempted when they get, leave the home or go out in the world, they'll still have a foundation to lay on. So I would say to the listener, absolutely do that as often as you can. Indeed, he's given us authority. Um, when you pray according to God's will, he will answer. And uh, Jesus himself said, pray that they may be kept from the evil one. Um, so I think the prayer of protection, especially over my family members, has has got to be one of my, personally, my most frequent prayers. Mm-hmm. So yes, pray. How would you pray? What what words would you say? Tom Parrish, I'm looking your direction. What I would say is I would lay hands on them, if at all possible, if they're willing to do that, because uh, I like that touch. And then I would simply say, you are a child of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has sanctified you and set you apart. He has called you to be his ambassador of the gospel. From this moment on, The blood of Jesus covers you, and no demonic, no power has power over you except the Lord Jesus. Call on his name, and you'll always be able to walk with him. Thank you. That's basically a way to pray something like that. Yeah. Jeff, anything you want to say to that? I I like it. Sounds powerful to me. Yeah. All right. Here's another question. How can you explain how Christianity is different from other religions? (laughs) You know, there's only one guy who has on his resume risen from the grave. There you go. Right? And that is Jesus Christ. Every other religious leader of every other system of thought throughout the world and throughout history uh, died and stayed in their graves. Christ rose again. So it, it is very unique in terms of religious systems, or I should say belief systems in the world, because Christianity in reality is not a religion. I, I view religion as man's attempt to reach God or reach the divine or reach the higher state or nirvana or whatever. It's what man has to do in order to reach that state. Biblical Christianity is all about what God has done. Yeah through his son, Jesus Christ, to reach us. It's a relationship, and it is a living relationship, not simply a set of rules or a set of teachings, but it is knowing Jesus and the Father and the the power of the Holy Spirit, and in that, you're a new creation. If people would really sit down and study the world religions compared to Christianity, most of it would come way dumbfounded. But we live in a culture where people want to say, well, don't all religions believe the same thing with absolutely no information or background? And I've learned when I talk to people like that, and the Lord loves them. I know they're trying. They don't understand. But I will say to them, great, can you show me the similarities between what Jesus said about himself and forgiveness and eternal life and how to where to live and Confucius or Buddha or, you know, Allah? 
or Muhammad. And usually people stand there with their mouth open. And so part of what we have to help people get by is the cliche answers that they're basically all the same. Because most people, I hate to say it, and you know this, Jeff, too, and so do you, Bill. Most people don't take the time to really study it. But when you do, mm-hmm. it's a different world. Seems like a lot of world religions tell you how to get close to God. Christianity, you know, the leader of Christianity says, I am God. Kind of a big yeah. difference. Yeah. That's why I love That's that true. passage. You know, I came looking for you right. before you ever came looking for me. Right. All right. You're listening so, to Guy Talk. Oh, Jeff, do you have another comment before we go to break? Well, yeah. I just, one of the great lies of the world that as Tom was talking, I, I thought of one of the great lies of the world, and that is all roads lead to God. And uh, Christianity, in fact, every belief system claims exclusivity. Christianity is no different. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Yeah, I mean, could you show up at the Hindu offices and say, I want to become a Hindu, but uh, I'm not really buying this reincarnation stuff? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. They're yeah. All, they all have the, a unique set of beliefs that yeah. are mutually exclusive from the other religions of the world. Yeah, please send your questions over. Some great ones coming in, 877-933-2484. Guide Talk, lots more of it coming up next. Oh, life can be filled with distractions. I saw a survey that said, The average person will look at their phone 320 times a day. This Lent, let's take a moment to step away from all the distractions and let's read the Bible together. You can start this wonderful program called Reading the Bible Together with Us and you can learn how to better connect with God through His Word and through studying ancient disciplines practiced by Jesus Himself. You can sign up for this free study now at MyFaithRadio.com. Let's spend this season of Lent focusing on our Savior, on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and what fuels our minds and our hearts to be more devoted followers of Jesus. Again, sign up for the free study now at MyFaithRadio.com. All right, it is time to answer some questions. And if you have them, send them over via text, 877-933-2484. It is Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk, my pastor, uh, Tom Parrish, and Jeff Verdorna, my panelist today. So here's a question. This is a very thoughtful question, like they all are. Uh, but this uh, listener said, I've been told and believe that our circumstances and situations that 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 we are unable to resolve to give that conflict to God to intervene and resolve. I understand God's response is on his timeline, not ours. What do we do? How do we handle these situations when it appears God hasn't responded yet? This is something I've given to God for a few years, and yet there hasn't been any resolution. I can accept that there may be no resolution, but wonder if this is the proper way to handle this. I got to say, that's a very mature question. Yeah, it is. That's wonderful. Yeah. Go ahead, Jeff. Give the answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we talked about prayer a couple weeks ago on the show and why 
does God hear our prayer? Does he always hear our prayer? And and when we talked about that, the answer is, well, of course. He's an omniscient God. He is in heaven. He knows our thoughts. He knows our prayers before we even ask them. If he knows every hair on our head and when a sparrow falls from the sky, of course he knows and hears all of our prayers. And he can answer yes, if especially when a prayer is according to his will or consistent with his will. He can say no, but he can also say wait. And I think if 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 the listener, the, the, the person who asked the question, is in a situation that's kind of a battle that they're struggling with, I, I like to go to Exodus 14, 14. Bill, I know you know this verse too. We've talked about this before. Yes. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Ah, oh, isn't that just it's, a beautiful it's, picture? It's solid, yeah. It's good. So we give it to God and we be still. And I would add, not biblically, but my own definition here, be still and pay attention. Because so often we get this idea, you know, it's like when a church prays for money. Or let's say you're, you're out of money. We want the Lord to provide us the money to pay for the bills or the money to pay for the church. None of us expect it to drop out of the sky. None of us expect it to be just a spiritual answer, and suddenly we woke up one day and there's, you know, 50000 in the bank. It usually comes through other Christians or other people who also hear the Lord's voice when he speaks to them, and they step forward and say, I believe in your ministry or I believe what you're doing. And so I think too often I run into Christians, and I'm just as guilty, so I'm not putting anybody down. But we seem to think that we've got to get a verbal answer from Jesus to our prayers so that we hear it in our bedroom late at night and that we know exactly what to do, when in essence, oftentimes we forget. He uses an abundance of people and situations to answer our prayers, and it usually comes through some other people. And if you're praying about someone to be saved and they aren't saved, you also have to then trust that because they aren't saved yet doesn't mean the Lord is not working to bring other people into their life to do that. And you have to be cooperative with that. So I encourage people, keep praying, keep asking, whether you see the answer or not, but know for sure Jesus is acting and he's going to do something. Mm-hmm. Jeff, jumping in on that or are we done? Well, I liked, you know, one of the things that Tom brought up are what I like to call God economy stories, you know, where God provides in, in a way that only he can. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm thinking of a number of stories where, you know, someone needed $800 to for such and such and such and such and prayed and prayed. And all of a sudden in the mailbox, a refund check comes in the mail for exactly $800. I mean, I, these kind of God economy stories, I, I call them not coincidences, but God incidences where God provides just when you need it and not before. Yeah, he does. Mm-hmm. Here's a question. In Mark chapter 14 and verse 51, it says, A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. I love that passage. I do too. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> this is deep waters too. This is not, I mean, we could spend a lot of time on this one. Yeah, yeah. That could have been so me so very so easily, so you I'm guys sure. go ahead. I would have run out. <laughs> It's interesting, the early church, when they determined that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were canonical, they were the true stories of Jesus, they affirmed that. Uh, The the basic criteria was simple, that the writer of the gospel especially had to be either a direct disciple of Jesus or the student of a direct disciple. Mark was, and that's one of the keys to the writing of Mark, because we take that as a gospel writing. Well, why did the church take that? 
And I think this is, you know, the Lord made sure this little story was put in there because most would say it's trivial, but it's not trivial. It gave credit to the author of Mark that he was there in the garden, literally saw Jesus captured Mm -hmm. and was part of that whole retinue that was there. And I think it is an impressive statement. And as a writer, and I write not only theological books, but fiction books and things like that. Uh, this is the way I would write it. This is the clue that tells me how powerful the Gospel of Mark is with the story of the young man in the garden. And, of course, he's not going to give you his name, but I'm sure that when Mark's was read and that verse was read in the early church, I'm sure most of the Christians just smiled and laughed and took a look at the old man called Mark because they <laughs> knew it was about him. Yeah, let's not forget the the context immediately preceding this. They're in the garden, and I just read verse 43. Uh, Judas appeared, and with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs and sent by the chief priests and the teachers of the law to arrest Jesus. And what are they about to do? The men seized Jesus and arrested him, verse 46. And 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 when the when Jesus is arrested— did all his disciples stand with him? No, they they got scared and they fled. And one of them, probably Mark, like Tom said, fled in such a haste that even when they grabbed him, he left his clothes behind and had to flee naked. So that's the scene. I also think there's some spiritual significance that we're not mining on that passage, which I, I've read and I can't recall right now. So... Maybe we There's can... a lot in Scripture What's that so funny, has Rosie? to do with clothing. I have Rosie to... laughing at me right now. All right, come on it and explain to... yourself, Larry. No, you just make me laugh. I've read and I can't remember. <laughs> but it right I can't. Now. I know. It's beautiful, Bill. I so relate to that. That's why I started laughing. Okay. Well, the, the spiritual part is that, and I look at it this way, Mark would be accused of abandoning Jesus just like Peter in the garden and, and everybody that was there. And yet he becomes a writer of the gospel. They become the first, you know, really major disciples that speak out. And the reality is, even in Jesus' worst hour, he was still looking out for his disciples. Even the guard that came and his ear was cut off by Peter, he put the ear back on. To me, we don't do this as human beings. And that shows the extraordinary nature of Jesus being the Son of Man and God the Son. It's just incredible. Mm-hmm. All right, we've got... A lot, of, a lot of questions coming in, which is great because we're doing an extended version today of Guy Talk, which means we're going to have an extra half hour. So uh, don't go anywhere and send your questions and we'll get them answered today. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. If you want to connect with Faith Radio, uh, Via social media, you can follow Faith Radio on Facebook and Instagram. I didn't know we were that uh, tech savvy, but we are. We're very cool. So you can go there for scripture and quote graphics and links to articles. There's special giveaways and live stream event notices. You can search Faith Radio on Facebook and Instagram. And so if you also have not gotten the Faith Radio app, I really recommend you getting it, trying it out. You can go to your your store, your Google store, or your Apple store, and you can give it a give it a try because it's pretty cool. It's also got lots of great uh, things you can discover on your app, and I encourage you to do it. And if I always say, if you don't like it, you can always delete apps, right, Tom? Absolutely. Yeah, not yeah, a problem. Yeah. So again, guy talk. 
or Guys Who Talk, send your questions over 877-933-2484. Try it one more time, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Hanging out with my friends, uh, Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn are my friends, and we're enjoying an extended version of Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk, which means we're going to spend an extra thirty minutes today. So we're going to be going till a full hour, another full hour. So let me know what you have, and we'll do our very, very best to answer your question. Eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Gentlemen, here's a question on the Sabbath. Not so much on which day, but on the keeping a day for the Lord. One person I listened to grouped the Sabbath with Old Testament regulations, ceremonial rituals to the Jews, and basically said, we don't have to do those anymore. But this is a commandment which I view as different from the Old Testament rituals. Seems like it is the only commandment people try to throw out. It's you know, can I start on this one? You may, please, if you do. don't mind. I just did an email on this today from <laughs> uh, someone who's been in my class and saying, you know, is it is it a sin? I think the question was specifically, is it a sin to celebrate the Sabbath on Sunday? And I said, no, absolutely not, for a number of reasons. Number one, and the first and foremost, is that we are no longer under the law now the the this argument was hinted at in the question but it's true paul says over and over again that we are not under the law but under grace he says we've died to the law we've been released from the law romans 7 says romans 8 says he set us free from the law in 1 corinthians 9 he says to those under the law i became like one under the law though i myself am not under the law I have a whole list of places, there's probably 20 places in Scripture, where Paul clearly says that as a believer in Christ, we're no longer under the law. Because we are now in Christ, Paul says in, in, in Hebrews that we have, or the writer of Hebrews says that we have entered the Sabbath rest of God. In other words, in the Old Testament, God said, work six days, rest the seventh day. But now that we are in Christ, we've rested from our own works. Hebrews 4 says, therefore, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their work. We have entered the Sabbath rest of God. For a believer in Christ, every day is a Sabbath rest. And and the last point is, is that Sunday is not some kind of new Testament Sabbath. It's not a Sabbath at all. Sabbath is sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. It didn't change. Christianity didn't change it. But 
early believers began to meet on the first day of the week, Sunday, most likely, this is not in Scripture, but most likely because that's the Lord's day. That's the day that he was resurrected from the grave. That's a good word, and it's interesting. You know, the New Testament uh, says, you know, do not forsake your gathering together, as is the habit of some. And I think that relates to coming together. And when the apostles came together, they did four things, and we read about it in Acts 2. You know, the, the the word, breaking of bread, prayer, and the fellowship. Well, what do we get on Sunday morning with the church? What do we get midweek if we go to church? And so it's no longer a legalistic day that you have to show up in order to show your honor to the Lord, but it is an attitude and a presence of being there with other Christians, and I don't know any other way to do it except doing it the way we're trying to do it with Sunday morning worship and maybe a Wednesday night prayer group or some other. That's how we come together. And that's healthy, and people need that. My concern is too many Christians, especially younger Christians, are saying it's just me and Jesus. I don't need other Christians. And I've asked them repeatedly, when did you get the memo from Jesus about this? Please inform me. I want to know because I don't see that in the Bible. We can't make it up. We are to be together, and I would say be together as often as you can, like Jeff is saying, and uh, more than once a week would be great. You know, Scripture says a cord of three strands is not easily broken. When we come together, we are absolutely stronger than when we're apart. Yep. Another comment that came in was Paul was talking about the ceremonial law, not the Ten Commandment law. Yeah, so the this is a, a common argument. I understand the point they're trying to make. In the New Testament, that distinction, although you could categorize the law of God, 650 or 680 plus laws uh, throughout the Old Testament, primarily in, in, the, in the Pentateuch, in the first five books, the Levitical law, it, you can categorize it as ceremonial law, moral laws, uh, feast and festival laws, you know, so on. But the New Testament does not make that distinction. So in some of the passages that I read where Paul says, I'm no longer under the law, it's clear that he's talking about the whole law, the law of Moses. We are not under the law. We're we're under the, not under the whole law. In fact, in fact, one of my, one of the coolest passages on this is in Romans 8, where Paul says that the righteous requirements of the law have been fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, Romans 8, 4. So in other words, because Christ came and lived perfectly under the law, the only one who ever did, by the way, and we are now in Christ, God now sees us as if we've obeyed the law of God perfectly because we're in Christ. That's what imputed righteousness is all about. And that's how he sees us. The righteous requirements of the law have been completed or consummated, fulfilled in us through faith in Jesus Christ. So I believe the the Christian is under grace, not under law. You're exactly right. And I want to push this one step further, uh, because once we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus, there is no law. He fulfilled the law. But everything we do now is out of thankfulness. And that's something we miss so often, that we we attend to worship, we support one another, we love one another, we share with one another, we even help those that we don't know, we forgive our enemies because we're thankful for all that Jesus has done for us. And I learned a long time ago, I will never live well under a legalistic system of obeying the Lord. I'm too human. But what I can do is I can live under a system of thankfulness, and even when I sin, 
I repent and come back and say, thank you, Jesus, for your redemption. Thankfulness is mm-hmm. wonderful. And that's why Paul says the righteous shall live by faith, not by the law. And he says, if you live by the Spirit, not if you live by all the commands, you will not gratify the desires of the, of the flesh. Uh, so that's exactly what, what Tom was just describing. All right, here's a question. If one is baptized at birth into whatever kind of religion, does that promise eternal salvation? I think, coming from a Lutheran tradition, that has been some of the teaching. I'm not saying it's the right teaching, but if you understand, uh, I think the church under Martin Luther and those that came along for a while, and then today it's a different story. But there is a covenant being made, just like there was a covenant made on the eighth day with the Jew, Jewish males who were circumcised, and nobody asked them, are you smart enough to figure all this out? Do you really believe this? No, they were grafted into the covenant, and the prophets held them accountable to the covenant, whether they wanted to be accountable or not. If we understand the early church doing this or through the centuries of baptizing infants, it is not a question of, oh, now they're saved, and now all they got to do is say, I've been baptized. No, 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 no. They need to repent and open their heart up to Jesus. What it comes down to is they have entered a covenant where they are given an opportunity through the church to hear the message of Jesus that people that don't aren't part of the church or aren't part of the covenant don't get to hear unless a messenger goes to them. So I believe there are many baptized Lutherans that will not be in the kingdom of God. Now I'm a Lutheran pastor saying this because the issue is not the baptism and it is not just the covenant. It is what the covenant covenant entails, and that's the new covenant, and that means surrendering to Jesus. And so uh, I have baptized people of all ages. Uh, I've done a lot of adult baptisms. But when I baptize a child in a Lutheran church, I say specifically to the parents and sponsors, you know, your responsibility is to tell them how much Jesus loves this child as they grow up and encourage that child to surrender their life to Jesus as soon as possible and walk with him the rest of their life. If they do that, it's a wonderful thing. If they don't or they think just being baptized is enough, then I think the devil's very happy. Yeah, that that very good word. So water doesn't save anybody. The water of baptism is symbolizes a lot, and in some traditions it symbolizes uh, different things. What what Pastor Tom just describes is, is the symbolism of the new covenant. In other traditions, it symbolizes in the immersion in baptism, the death, burial, and resurrection of yourself uh, when you believe and are saved. Uh, but I agree with uh, the, the core of the answer, and that is this, that we are saved by faith and faith alone. And that's what saves us. And once we are saved and once we are a new person, uh, I look at the pattern of Scripture. It says that once you are saved, then you are baptized and you are that immersion. And, and baptism, sure. uh, I think Scripture points to an immersion of that death into the water and the resurrection and the newness of life with Christ. And it's symbolic because we can't see when you're saved. There's, there, we don't see anything physical uh, that happens to a person. We don't, unlike Pentecost, we don't see anything coming down and so on. So this is a profession of an individual that says, I now identify with Christ, which is what baptism was with the, in the first century, is basically saying, I now belong to this group, and I'm going to be baptized in this group. And many groups used it. This was not an exclusive Christian thing. It was basically uh, like an initiation rite, if she says, I now identify with this group. And so that's how I, I see 
baptism today. I was at a funeral where one, a pastor of this particular denomination said that, and we know that John is in heaven because he was baptized in the family of God when he was an infant. No, 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 no. I know. There was a big part of me that wanted to stand up in the middle of this uh, funeral and say, no, that's not how you enter the kingdom of heaven. It's by faith in Christ. I have stood up at those things, Jeff, and again, in a lot of trouble. No, I sat there and I said, oh, what would Paul do? And I decided Paul would stand up. And so I sat there on my hands. I didn't say anything. I didn't stand up, but it was inappropriate, I think. Here's the bottom line. For all of us, whether doesn't matter what your denominational background is, practice it, baptism the way you want to. But the bottom line is, if you are not surrendered to Jesus, and you will continue to surrender to him through the rest of your life, then it doesn't matter what process you went under. What matters is, do you know him? And as far as I know, and Jeff, I know you believe this and Bill, that in the scriptures, we're saved by faith in the blood of Jesus we're not simply saved by what ritual act we've gone through one way or the other. All right, here's not a qu- here's not a question, but a lovely comment that goes like this. You can't possibly imagine how much I appreciate Faith Radio and Thursday's Guys Who Talk, as well as all the other programs you carry. God bless all of you. Mm. Thank you, Cousin Bill. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty nice. Yeah, we are going to do an it. extended version of Guy Talks. We're going to do an extra 30 minutes uh, today. So let me know what questions you have for the panel. 877-933-2484. And we will be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. Now I'm free to proceed. So yesterday I, I called Jeff and Tom and I said, hey, how about we do guy talk tomorrow? And they went, duh. So there, there you go. Well, here we are. Guy talk, but extended version today, which means a little extra time. When we get to the top of the hour, we're going to go another 30 minutes, which means we got time for your question. 877-933-2484. Can you please discuss sanctification? Also, with this, is it from our own free will to be able to turn from our sin, or is it purely the work of the Holy Spirit, or both? It is a combination in the sense that the initial work and the initial awakening and the initial power all come from the Holy Spirit. The issue that Christians have to face is, will we then cooperate with the Spirit, not to produce the results, but now to live in the results? And when, I'm, when I talk to people about sanctification, and I'm talking becoming like the Lord in that, you know, how do you deal with certain aspects of your life that are sinful? 
when you have been sanctified in the blood of Jesus. Well, the Holy Spirit is always attempting to give you spiritual awakening, and he is constantly trying to get you to come to grips with what you're doing. And when that happens, then you cooperate, and you repent, and you say yes, and you change, and you keep modif- putting that in your life so that your life is not controlled by language, behavior, or whatever. But it's it's initially, and, and I would say in one sense totally the work of the Spirit, but we can resist it, and that's something we should not do. Yeah, Tom said that initial uh, a movement is from God, and I, I agree. You know, in Revelation chapter 3, uh, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. Whosoever opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. I think that's a picture of salvation. So the first movement is from God. He's knocking. The, the question theologically, what's been debated for hundreds of years in Christianity, is does God dock, knock on some doors or does he knock on? on all doors. Uh, I look at scripture, I see things like Peter, when Peter says that he wishes none to perish, but all to come to repentance. I think God is knocking on the door of every single person's heart. But we need to respond by faith and open that door, and then God will save us. On the sanctification question, it's this is one that I think our theological terminology has confused us a little bit in the in, in understanding sanctification. Scripture sanctified is basically being made holy, mm-hmm. and Scripture says that we have been made holy, as we were talking about earlier in the first half hour. First Corinthians six eleven, for example, says that you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You have been made holy. You have been made holy, we have been sanctified. Now, we use that term theologically in what I like to more specifically say progressive sanctification, and that is the lifelong process of now living out this new identity, being growing up, as we were talking about earlier, uh, growing in faith, and, and living out this Christian walk more and more and more as we grow in faith in him. I call that progressive sanctification because we've been made holy. Now we need to live it out. I really think that uh, sanctification is like the ring bearer at a wedding. Now you might say, what in the world are you talking about? Well, I've done what a lot of weddings. What in the world are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I've done a lot of weddings, and these little boys especially, you know, they have these nice little suits on. Some of them have a little cummerbund and all of that, and a bow tie and whatever, except that about half of them are already halfway undressed when they're coming down the aisle with the ring. You know, it just isn't who they think they should be, and so they're taking off the coat or they've undone the 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 uh, you know the necktie or whatever. And and I think that's the problem the Holy Spirit has with us. We're already set apart through the blood of Jesus. We're already fully dressed. Our problem in life is we keep taking it off and trying to do our own thing, and the Holy Spirit's continually putting it back on. But uh, I've had some real laughs at weddings when kids are up there with their shoes off and they threw the pillow with a ring on it. I mean, that's they symbolize human nature, even Christian human nature, better than I want to admit. All right. Yesterday, I had uh, my friend David Wheaton on the show, and I have to say, I was a little shocked, and my shock showed. <laughs> because uh, George Barna, who I've also had on the show a number of times, had a survey, and he was asking people, uh, People who identified as born-again Christians, if they agree to this list of six items, 
Now, I think that'd be kind of a good guy talk uh, to talk about. One was, an, uh, do you believe in an absolute moral truth? Do you believe an absolute moral truth exists? And there's not a lot of people that believe that. But think about the consequences. If there is no absolute moral truth, then right isn't determined because the Lord says it's right or wrong. It's whoever has the biggest stick, whoever has the most power. So theoretically... If there is no moral truth, then Adolf Hitler had a legitimate right to do what he did in Germany because he had more power than the other people. You know, Joseph Stalin had the right to do what he did. I don't think most of us think through what we're talking about. We don't believe there is moral truth out there. If there is no moral truth, there is no right and wrong. And if there's no right and wrong, then somebody can bust into your house tonight, take everything away from you, steal your child, and you'll never see them again. And nobody will hold them accountable. That is the problem, I think, with world views when they don't want to believe in absolute truth. There's an old kind of adage where the student goes to the professor who just said in class, there is no absolute truth. And the student says, are you absolutely sure (laughs) about that? And he says, oh, I see where you're going, young man. Well, there's one exception to that, and that is – that there that this is the one exception to that to what you're saying that there is no absolute truth uh, are you sure there's only one exception and how do you absolutely know that and and you can see where this goes philosophically logically it just it doesn't make sense when you declare that there's no absolute truth you're declaring an absolute truth and let's not forget the truth is basically what is it's it's reality That is what truth is. And God, of course, sees things as they perfectly are. Mm -hmm. And so when he says, I am truth, he was literally saying, I am, I am reality, because I see everything as it really is. And so, yes, there is absolutely absolute truth. And it comes from God, by the way. And the next question was, is the Bible accurate? And it was basically the inerrancy of Scripture question. Uh, So is the Bible accurate? It's interesting because archaeology continues to uncover. They just uncovered the Pool of Siloam. They keep discovering all the references that are in the Bible, all the names that are there, all the people that are there. I know at the turn of the 20th century, the German theologian said there was no Hittite civilization. It's, It's made up in the Bible. And then about 10 years later, the archaeologists discovered Guess what? The Hittite civilization. Tom, I have Hittite friends, so yeah. I know, I do too. (laughs) We live together. The bottom line is, um, the Bible, the more we study it, the more accurate we're finding it is, and it is overwhelming. But again, we've got to get away from the devil's cliches, that there are mistakes in the Bible, there are myths. No, 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 no. Do the research and see what it really says. Mm -hmm. There are... We have discovered, like Tom said in archaeology, nothing has ever shown to disprove any of the historical accounts in Scripture, nor has any uh, true history as well, nor has either any scientific fact ever been discovered that contradicts anything in Scripture. So it is a a first-class historical uh, uh, record, um, and it's it's absolutely been proven true over and over and over again. Um, so now the question is, here's the simple question. In English, is the our English Bible uh, infallible? And some will kind of, I think, naively say yes. But remember, the English Bible that you read is a 
is a translation from the Old Testament Hebrew and the, and the New Testament Greek. So man did that. So there are times that we see uh, apparent contradictions. I would argue that many of them are because of translation issues, because there are no contradictions in Scripture. Very That's nice. exactly what they are. They're apparent contradictions. And with a little study, as Tom said, you can resolve pretty easily most of those apparent contradictions. When I went to seminary, my wife bought me a gift. And this is way back in 1974. She gave me a eight-version parallel New Testament. So on every page, it had the same exact, it was, they're parallels from different translations of exactly the same verses. And I lived by that for a long time because I was learning Greek and I wasn't that good at it at that point, but it was coming. Here's the bottom line. Today, the average listener to this program can go on the internet and they have parallels all over the place that are free and you can compare any mm -hmm. verse to any other verse and see where there is uh, an agreement and that's what jeff's talking about and i encourage people to do that if you can't read Greek or Hebrew, do it the tools are there and tools to go back to the original hebrew and the original greek that yeah. we have today online with a click all right, we're running out of time in the top of this hour, but we're going to extend for another 30, so I'm going to tee up what we're going to talk about when we come back. We're discussing these biblical worldviews that I talked to David Wheaton about yesterday. I want to process this with my guys on Guy Talk. So we've gone through uh, the questions, is there an absolute moral truth? Is the Bible accurate? When we come back, we're going to ask questions like, is Satan real or is he just some kind of symbolism? And can you earn your way into heaven? And did Jesus live a sinless life? And does God, is he still an all-knowing power that rules the universe? And then I will tell you the results of the survey, which still to me are very shocking. But if you have questions, we're going to cover those as well because we have time for that. 877-933-2484. And a thank you to Bruce, who said, I love you guys. I schedule my afternoons around your show when I can. Thank you very much. That's why we do it at four, so he can be on. We always try to schedule around I Bruce like and his schedule. Yeah, yeah, love yeah. It. it's not about us and our schedule. So we'll take a little break. When we come back, lots more guide talk. And then also, uh, Dr. James Merritt is going to be joining me in the second part of the hour. He's written a book called How to Deal with How You Feel, Managing the Emotions That Make Life Unmanageable. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.